Hey there, I'm Becky, and welcome to Literary Escapes with me, Becky. Today I have the great pleasure of sharing with you an interview I had recently with author Noreen Nassim. So sit back and enjoy, and we're going to be headed to Uganda for this one. So let's jump right into the conversation. Enjoy the show. Well, I am so excited to talk to you today, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for uh, inviting me today uh, to to spend some time to speak to you. um, I love what you do on Instagram. I've seen your profile. Thank you. You speak to some some of the most wonderful authors out there. So I I am. There are so many. Yeah, it's there's so many, and I've tried to keep it where I only interview and bring on the book club um, women authors because I don't know. I feel like they don't necessarily get as big of a voice sometimes <laughs> and so yeah. I I you know even if my platform isn't huge I would like to you know there's just so many amazing women authors and so I feel like I'm trying to do my little part and <laughs> I think you did an amazing job I think well, just that you've kind of wrapped up everything that, that your platform stands for and you know you shouldn't call it little I think it's it's quite rather powerful because you're picking up on so many voices out there that tend to be sort of marginalized as well and it is mostly women unfortunately so it is yeah it's great what you're doing and these are the kind of platforms that tend to grow full force so you you may be little now but <laughs> <laughs> <this> space. <laughs> I love that I have been looking through your stuff and I'm absolutely fascinated by it because it doesn't sound like you started out intending to be an author. No, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. If you told the young sort of 14 year old Noreen at school that she's one day going to be an author, um, I think 14 year old Noreen would have had a shock and said, she just stood back and gone, what? No, no. I think you're looking for somebody else in the class. <laughs> Definitely not me. Um, I remember my English teacher, as, as lovely as he was, he, he was absolutely fabulous, but I remember he would um, he would sort of encourage me in other subjects. He'd say, Noreen, you have some fab stories here, however, maybe you want to focus on your art, or maybe you want to focus on geography. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I, it didn't. Um, it didn't really start out that way for me. I never intended to to pick. I think this path just picked me. I didn't pick writing. It just fell into place at the right time and just enlightened and illuminated a certain path for me that I'm just still following and okay. very much love. I didn't realize I would fall in love with writing because I'd accepted this label very early on at school that I wasn't a very good writer. Isn't and that, that interesting was- how labels have such a um, lasting effect in our lives? They do. They're very powerful. You know, they say they that words, words don't have an effect, but words are very powerful. Words are powerful. Yeah. They are. Especially early on, I think as an adult, you're able to sort of mold words and you're able to sort of understand words differently and interpret them differently. But when you when you're young, you have a very set guideline and framework for how you interpret things. Um, And it's very limited as well. So you only interpret them in a certain way. So those labels do tend to stick with you. And 
yeah a lot of the stories we tell ourselves now are based on stories that either words that somebody told us earlier or things that happened to us early on in life and we still tell those stories to ourselves and don't ever question well don't necessarily question whether they're true or not and true that is true yes part of those stories do form a lot of our stories that we share now you're right um yeah. but we learn by these stories and I think that's the reason we share so yeah. much of them because they're uh, lasting examples of what we should and shouldn't do how we should behave shouldn't behave how we how we interpret things going forward I think this is and I think that's that's our human nature this is why we share exactly exactly share. yeah exactly and if you are willing to step on a different path and maybe change a story that's when magic happens it feels like absolutely and it's having the courage to step on that different path exactly. as well and I think so many people are sat on the edge um whether it's starting a new job a career or perhaps starting a family perhaps entering a new relationship or whatever phase it is within their life um you know many people are sort of sat on the edge and this way this way and that way but they won't quite make the decision and sometimes it's about having the courage just to go mm -hmm. for it and having just no to, yeah and being willing to fail, maybe, Absolutely. maybe not. <laughs> but failures are such a great thing. You know, I keep saying this to my students every single day. Do not be afraid of failures because yeah. failures are part of our journey. And I think students are often sort of conditioned to think that failure is, is terrible. You know, it's it's ride or die situation. If you fail, then that's it. It's the end of the road. And, and it's not, you know. It's and this not. Is it's like the beginning of the road. I... It is. Yeah, it's part of it. It's part of the journey. And I think it's what strengthens the road, um, you know, and it strengthens your path. So exactly. you need to fail. You need to fail over and over again in order to become better. Um, and I think this is what I'm constantly trying to normalize, whether it's amongst students, whether it's amongst staff in meetings, whether it's amongst, you know, sort of family members. I'm constantly mm -hmm. saying, don't worry, you fall down, you get back up, you try again. Exactly. You keep your lessons in tow, but remember, you know, what you've learned from it and go forward. Um, but yeah, I was I was thinking about that this morning for whatever reason, that it's so interesting how it feels like the youth of today are protected from failing. And I mean, I, when I was a kid, nobody's told me not to, <laughs> I remember very clearly <laughs> riding on my horse through an orange grove and got clocked in the head going under a branch. And <laughs> I can tell you that was a good lesson. <laughs> I learned not to do that. <laughs> it's so true. This is it. But I think you're right. The youth going forward now, we do wrap them in cotton wool. And and yeah. I think it's easily done. I think, you know, sort of earlier on before I became a mother, I was I think I was very, very strict with my students. And, you know, as soon as I became a mother, I, I realized there was a certain soft side of me that came to exactly. the surface. And you want to protect your kids, I mean. Absolutely. <laughs> and I started seeing the students differently. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I began wrapping them and I thought, no, no, I can't do this. You know, this isn't the right way forward. Um, but yeah, we do. I think it's, it's human instinct to want to protect um, our children, our teens, our youngsters, but- yeah. I think they, they have to be allowed to make their own mistakes. You've exactly. got to give them room. You've got to give them space. The best thing you can do is advise them, but you cannot hold them tight in a blanket because at the end of the day, we've learned from our mistakes and that what that's pretty much what makes us strong. Exactly. And we it's don't made want us to who we are. Yeah. 
absolutely we can't deny them the opportunity to become strong themselves because exactly. essentially you know one day we won't be there to guide them so you've got to try and give them every bit of advice you can and sometimes I wonder whether it's just a cycle because I, I remember things my mother said to me when I was young and it went in one ear and out the other and I was like yeah mom whatever <laughs> and we we never learn from other people's mistakes no matter how much we try we will never learn from other people's isn't mistakes isn't that the truth oh it is you know the most intelligent creatures on this earth the most intelligent people that are in the forefront you know helping humanity today on this planet they will have never learned from other people's mistakes because we don't do that it's not within our nature um, and it's frustrating as an adult, knowing that you, you can't pass that wisdom on. It is yeah. hard. Um, but you, what you can do is you, you can make people aware. Again, it comes back to sharing stories, sharing experiences. Exactly. Um, and create a sense of awareness. But we will essentially make our own mistakes, you know. And our kids whether, will and our students will. And yeah. You have to. You have to. Because yeah. that is how that is how we learn. That's right. So that was a that was a fun uh, diversion there. Yes. <laughs> so how did you become a writer? Do you know it was it was I tell you Becky it was a it was a little flame inside it was this burning desire a flame that got stronger and stronger and stronger to tell my father's story and it was incredible because I was um, sort of you know, it, in the very early stages of motherhood, I had a young sort of eight month old baby at the time, she's now four years old. And um, I remember watching a program about the Asian expulsion on TV and it covered uh, the whole story of Edie Amin in 1972 when he expelled over 80,000 Asians yeah. within the framework of 90 days. And um, I've always known that dad was an expat and I never really looked into the sort of the, the historical archives or the stats or the details or the yeah. programs but well here's an opportunity let me watch this and let's go back in time and that program just hit me like a breeze block I I was stunned that night because I just thought oh my gosh why have I never looked into this you know I've always sort of known about it it's been there in the background but why have I never delved into this? This is such a huge historical event that took place and there's just not enough coverage. And right. I thought to myself, well, I know what happened, but I don't really know much about what dad went through, his perspective, how it made him feel, um, what he experienced. So I rang mm. him the next morning and I remember being in tears that night, sort of, I didn't sleep very well. And the next morning I rang and I said, dad, um, you know, you you've always spoken about the expulsion but how did it make you feel knowing that you had 90 days to leave your home you know with absolutely nothing just just meager belongings yeah and he sort of froze and said where's uh, this coming from yeah <laughs> <laughs> you've known about this for over 30 years um how why are you asking me now and I said dad I just watched this program last night and I just couldn't sleep and and again I broke down in tears and my dad was like don't worry don't don't cry it's fine you know I'll tell you everything you need to know come and see me so I went to see him okay and we sat down and what started as a poem evolved into a short story 
And from there, it just evolved into a full-blown novel. Mm -hmm. And every single day, I was still on maternity. I would go there every day and I would just take little snippets of, of his sort of- Different pieces words, of it, yeah. Pieces, that's it. And I had to be very mindful of PTS as well, because obviously it's, you know, my auntie describes it as a Pandora's box. It had been locked up for so many years. Right. There was a lot coming out. So it was done in stages, really. It was done in little pieces. And then I remember sort of <laughs> sitting down and- at times it would get a little bit heavy and I would sort of stop and say right dad that's enough for today um you know here's your grandchild <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah let's have some fun now good buffer <laughs> good buffer exactly so it, it was a lovely process it, I, I spent a lot of my maternity with dad and my little one together and you know it was lovely. a special time very special very special and wow. it was very emotional as well and um, mm -hmm. I naturally I had a lot of hormones as well flying around fresh hormones you know it was <laughs> it was a very special time it was lovely to sit with dad and, and extract that and then eventually I as I was writing I just I realized there was something about writing that I just loved it was a bubble that I would escape into and isn't that and funny it's so strange and I thought wow I I feel like me in this bubble, it was like I found a little piece of me, you know, and I think that's what life is about. It's about, it's about finding these little pieces of, puzzle, of the puzzle that fit with you and resonate with you. And all of a sudden I felt this real sense of deep happiness thinking, wow, I don't want to ever stop doing this. This is something That is I amazing. I love that. So and, go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that was pretty much it. So it was a it was a piece that I'd unlocked. Um, a bit like you know when you play a game and you unlock this level and you get this rush of coins. Power up. <laughs> Power up <level. laughs> yeah, that, that was the process. That was pretty much how I. I thought. love that. That's really cool. So was your dad single when he got um, expelled? He was. He was only nineteen years old, and oh, um, yeah. he was single. He was very young. Obviously, at nineteen, he was just you know, so just starting out, you know. And did life. he have the British passport? Is that so? How it worked was back in the um, back back in the days. How it worked was when um, a lot of Indian people sort of came over from India. I mean, it, it, the majority came from India. However, there were other countries where people had migrated to uh, right. Uganda, sort of from Pakistan, Oman. Um, so there were nearby countries where many people had come, but the majority had come over from India. And it was when the British were, you know, sort of colonizing India, they were, they right. were moving there and they sort of said, look, we want to build railways in Africa. Um, we need a workforce. We'd love to bring you over. In return, we will offer you citizenship. So what essentially happened was um, sort of in the 50s and the 60s, a lot of workers sort of came over. They built the railways. But once built, they chose to stay there rather than moving to the UK. They thought this okay. is brilliant. The climate is the same, food, etc. You know, they were quite happy there. Um, okay. So they settled and that was it. They made a life there for themselves. They built up businesses, um, you know, sort of contributed to the economy. And, um, and they were happy and there were sort of, I'd say, at least two to three generations of people that had settled there um, and they were just living life. Uh, rather sort of you know cohesively as well they lived well amongst each other you know you had people from different religions backgrounds races living in harmony which was so idyllic and I think that's that's something that dad very much misses even now you know, I would imagine yeah there was a very sort of you know homely feeling uh, about that mm. place um, that I think everybody misses so um Uganda was a British colony as well is that 
it was that's why the um that's what happened. So then when they gained independence in 1962, uh, they then had uh, President Milton Obote, who sort of looked after the country for many years until he was then overthrown by his own general, who was Idi Amin at the time. Right. So Milton Obote, I believe, was on a, um, I think he was on a UN tour um, abroad in Malaysia, I think, a far eastern country. And it was literally as he left, Idi Amin found his opportunity, Ooh. overthrew, did a military coup and took over. Wow. And the first year of his reign, I think things were fairly stable, but then he started to gain momentum in terms of creating his own stamp on the country. And it was pretty much overnight that he decided he doesn't want Asian people to be in this country. Um, he realized that most of the economy was kind of being run by Asians. And he thought, okay. no. And in one of his speeches, I think he even sort of um, says, I've, I've seen a little snippet on YouTube, how he was very adamant that he wanted um, Ugandan people to be actually right. running the administration. And he sort of declared that UK had caused this problem by bringing the Indians into the country. And he right. then sort of, right, you know, this is your problem. You need to solve it. Come and take them away. You've got 90 days, You've otherwise 90 they days. will be. Absolutely. Otherwise, they were due to be executed. He was very well known for massacring tribes, uh, many of the followers of his predecessor, um, and he would feed them to the crocodiles in the Nile, you know, and it, oh my scary. yeah, like Victoria even. <laughs> but yeah, wow. it, it, he was a very scary man. And I I sort of discovered more as I did my research about who he I mean, was and watched, you know, The Last King of Scotland. I realized how incredibly terrifying this this soul was um you know he was a force to be reckoned with he was very much feared by many of the other world leaders at the time yeah. um so when he declared that this is it you've got 90 days you know at first people were very apprehensive my, my father's family was sort of thinking is this real you know he tends mm -hmm. to make lots of claims and sometimes he doesn't quite follow through what's he going to do and then as things became unstable, suddenly the communities realized, my goodness, we, we, we need to get out of here. We've yeah. got to go, um, you know, because there's trouble brooding, <laughs> people getting killed in the streets, there's uh, land and wow. properties being pillaged, looted, businesses being looted. And it all began within that 90 day period, not after. Okay. Um, so people realized and thought, my goodness, you know, we've got to make a move. We've got to keep, you know, take this seriously. And. Um, everybody but my father, unfortunately, had their passports sorted. My father had ne never actually travelled out of the country. Oh. So in order to get his paperwork done, unfortunately, he was left behind with his uncle because my grandfather's main concern was getting the women out of the country. Yeah. His first you know, priority was looking after his wife and his daughter. Um, the women, he just had to get them to safety. So my dad stayed behind with his uncle. Um, he did cut it very close. I think he managed to get out within three days of the deadline, the looming deadline. My goodness. Yeah, quite scary, but in the end, yeah. <laughs> very frightening. But it, the, the book itself, Expelled from Uganda, kind of covers a lot of his um, trials and tribulations that he had, the challenges that he had, just getting to the airport, just getting his paperwork, just getting those sort of little milestones that he needed just to, mm -hmm. you know, the plane itself it covers all of those stories and then it zigzags between present day timeline and then it goes back in time as well to little short stories of when he was young 
um, okay. days where he celebrated just you know being a child living in Africa enjoying you know the fruits of the land having a very normal family life like any other child right. growing up with wow. siblings and quarrels with parents and naughty things that he did and you know little um, you know he was a hooligan he definitely was a hooligan <laughs> that's <laughs> funny yeah so he, you know all of these funny stories that just you know just show that they, they were a normal family like anybody else um and then all of a sudden they just had this life huge up, turned upside yeah. down life just went upside down for them it really did wow and was he married at that while well, he was 19 so was he married or he, so no he wasn't he dad got married um in I think it was sort of I'd say about three or four years after arriving in the UK so okay about 20 yeah about 23 I think when okay he got married. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he met my wow. Yeah. And so have you ever been to Uganda? No. So I I'm hoping to travel back with dad for the very first time in 50 years. Wow. I'd love to go back this year because I would actually love for dad to just see it one more time. He's not been back since. And this yeah. year marks the 50th anniversary. And um, so we've got uh, celebrations happening this year and a lot of reunions happening uh, we've got events happening down in London which I'm going to be hopefully attending and yeah everybody's getting together it's been 50 years you know half a century's gone by and I in the past when I've asked dad would you like to go back his answer was no I don't want to see it because yeah. it won't be the Uganda that I left behind true so you know, I, I can see, I can see it from that perspective, but I've asked him again to, you know, this year, I sort of said, dad, would you consider it? And he sort of showed an interest and he said, yeah, I think I, I might consider it. Okay. So I think he's warming to the idea. Wow. How interesting. It's gotta be like you said earlier, you know, the Pandora's box. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I think every time I speak to not only dad, I've got, you know, sort of aunts and family members and when I've spoken to them about this, it's there's always this pause, this really long pause, and it's sort of yeah. you know you can see, you can almost sort of see that there's like a film playing in the background, you know, in their minds that their eyes just glaze over, and you can just see that there's this rush of memories that just goes through them. Yeah, I wish I could just you know crawl into one of those minds and actually see it for myself because that was the hardest part about writing this book I could I could only interpret or envisage what dad would verbally tell He's willing me. to so tell you yeah absolutely so that interpretation of the book has come from my interpretation of what dad was yeah it, you know again I would love to just see it you know if there was some sort of video footage you know that would cover it that that would really give me an insight and I think mm -hmm. that's going back to the day that it hit me watching that documentary I think that's why it hit me so hard because I saw black and white footage I saw actual footage and I saw expressions I saw fear I saw uncertainty um and it, it just I think that's what evoked that feeling within that urge to write um yeah, that's so, so interesting yeah yeah, yeah. And you started as a visual artist, correct? I did, yes. So I've always been, um, you know, and still am a visual artist. I, I've, you know, loved the idea of graphic design and I just love the idea of IT and art coming together. It's, it's a lovely fusion and 
I, I love digital art. I love uh, working with sort of branding and poster design, book covers. My, you know, I designed my own book cover. Nice. And, uh, these sort of things are really, you know, sort of part of my part of my vascular system, really. You know, <laughs> so, you know, I never in a million years thought I would take to writing. I've written so many academic papers, but the world of literature is just such a different beast. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I've got to pour my heart and soul into this and mm-hmm. really sort of learn the tools of the trade, equip myself. And I just took to online tutorials. I took online courses, masterclasses, and um, I joined groups, local writing groups Mm -hmm. at the library. I um, sort of befriended lots of authors for advice. I have a good colleague of mine who's an author. And, you know, all of this network around me was fabulous because it was that support system that allowed me to then build on the confidence and, and go forward. And I just, that was it. I just took the leap and that was it. Every day was a, was a learning day. Every day was, was a, a day in class because yeah. I'm constantly learning. And I still am, you know, now I don't really have my father to call and say, dad, what happens next? I'm writing my next fiction novel. So I've jumped from memoir to fiction. Uh, okay. That, that was going to be a question is, <laughs> are you still um, writing? <laughs> I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. exciting. I am so excited. I'm so excited. I'm 20% into my next novel. I've now jumped from sort of, you know, the world of nonfiction to fiction. I'm now writing a fictional tale about the Ottoman Empire and about the harems and the the women of the harems as well. There's a lot of marginalized stories there that I want to sort of bring to the surface. And um, it's really interesting because, again, it's like the extra wheels have come off the bike and I'm learning on a two wheeler now. I don't have the support system. I can't ring anybody and say what what happens next. What's the next chapter? I have to, I have to create this world myself. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's it's scary. I'm still. It is learning. scary. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in the midst of writing my first book right now as well, and amazing. I totally and relate to that. <laughs> it's it's weird that this whole this whole story can come out of your head it's amazing isn't it this is it it just shows you the power of the human brain and how we create realms and worlds and connections relationships um how we sculpt characters Mm -hmm. it all comes from within here right and it is amazing I think every I think every writer must accept I don't think there's ever a writer in the world who's sort of written a bunch of books and then sat down for the next book and said I know exactly what I'm doing I agree with you. I don't think they exist. <laughs> I totally <laughs> agree. There, you know, show me who they are because I don't think they exist. I, I've talked to so many authors in the past year and a half and even ones who've written like 40 books, they still say that same thing where, you know, you sit down and you think, why do I feel like I'm qualified to do this? And how am I ever going to get this out of my head? Absolutely. So yeah. like, That's not encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> But it's the reality. It just shows that, you know, um, even the most, um, you, you know, well-established authors out there that write books upon books, you know, they they experience that. They go through these yeah. emotions and feelings. They they experience imposter syndrome with every single book. Exactly. Um, and it, it's normal. It's it's a normal feeling um, to, to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like we were talking about earlier about failing and learning to live within the fear I guess yeah 
I have so many questions that, that keep, you know, bombarding my mind. I sort of think to myself, well, is my next book going to be as good? You know, what if it's an absolute flop? What if people have a certain expectation now? And what if, right. you know, there's so many what ifs, but the thing is, you know, you can't stop the what ifs, but what you can do is when they do come in, you can learn to get rid of them. You can mm-hmm. learn to sort of harbor your own intentions and remember and remind yourself, what your intentions are, why are you writing? If you can keep asking yourself that, why are you writing? And if you can answer that with full Mm. confidence every single time, it will remind you the reason behind why you're doing this. And, you know, just the fact that you love writing is a good enough reason. So goodbye imposter syndrome. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And whether anybody buys a book or not, that doesn't make you any less of a writer. I mean... You are writing for you. It's for your stories. It's, you know, it's to share your version of events. And, you know, whether it's a large market that buys in or a tiny niche market, even if one person reads it and that person is you, then you know what? That is enough because exactly, it's damn well good enough. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So I saw that you did a TEDx talk. How did that come about? Oh, so that was, oh my goodness, that was incredible and also incredibly frightening because a lot of people, now a lot of people say to me, Noreen, you come across so confident and you're full of beans and energy and, you know, oh, it must have been so wonderful and it really, truly was. The experience of TEDx was great, but that's not to say that I, my goodness, I had sweaty palms throughout the process. My palms sweated. You you faked it well. I tell you, it was hard. It was hard. It was um, it was one of the most exhilarating life experiences that I've ever had. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, would I do it again? Maybe in a few years when I've gathered <laughs> gathered it. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still recovering <laughs> from <laughs> from the hardships because it was hard work. My goodness, it does take a lot out of you, but. And um, the amount of growth I think that you go through with such an experience is, is immense. And how it came about was um, obviously at the time I'd released the books, there was a lot happening in the newspapers locally as well, radio shows and interviews. Um, and I came across the TEDx platform and I thought, oh, this would be interesting. And then TEDx started following me, TEDx Doncaster on Twitter. And I thought, oh, my goodness, they know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So I literally just sort of went through the application. I saw that the applications were open and I thought, right, let me give this a go. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm doing it, but I'm just going to do it. And (laughs) it was really frightening. And all of a sudden I got a response saying, we'd love for you to audition. And so I auditioned and I got chosen as one of the one of the 12 speakers. And it was incredible. The people that I spoke with on stage to this day, I'm still friends with today. Yeah, that's we've awesome. A, we've got a TEDx alumni wedding coming up just in a matter of four weeks. We've got TEDx oh. bridesmaids as well. And that is so cool. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. So the, the experience was fab. Um, obviously, the, the, the theme was positive disruptor and how yeah, I liked that shapes our lives. So my... I mean, there were so many different speakers on the day. We had an ex-policeman, um, we had entrepreneurs, we had scientists, doctors. It was incredible. And we were all sort of looking at positive disruption and how it can play a positive part in our lives for the, for the better. And my angle was from storytelling. It was the idea of, you know, 
how positive disruption is so necessary at different stages of our lives, mm-hmm. whether it's in our personal, our careers, whether it's, you know, from a business angle, professional angle, whatever it is, like, positive disruption is something, it's one of my life mantras now, it's become something that I, I do now every single day, because without it, we are stuck in integral cogs of systems that just keep rolling over and over again. And we, we will never change if we don't shake things up for the That's better. Yeah. And, you know, I know there's this old phrase of, you know, why break it, you know, for why try to fix it, sorry, if it's not broken. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it may not look broken from the outside, but what if it is? What if we can do things better? You know, we have to keep evolving. Um, we do. You know, so why not evolve our systems we have to change the way we see things the way we interact you know these things have to evolve with us because we can't become super you know human and then just have the same old systems again and again around us exactly we have to shake things up and um, sometimes that's what's needed and yes it can be a painful process but think about Mm -hmm. the long-term outcomes and so that's what my message was to the to the audiences it was all about thinking about you know, not being afraid as well from starting from scratch, because it was the idea of dad's, you know, legacy as well. The idea that he came to the UK with absolutely nothing. Um, and he started from scratch. And every time I've had a little knockback in life or a change of direction, a change of path or pace, dad has always said, Noreen, never be afraid of change. Never be afraid for, from starting from scratch, because these are the things, you know, that will help build stronger foundations going right. forward. And again, it comes to failure. Don't be afraid. You can build again. Just have the right intention. So that was what my talk was about. And it was it was, it was a really good talk. One of the lines that stuck out to me with it was never let society make choices for you. And I love that line. I think that's so important to even if you're completely different from what everybody else is saying or thinking, own it. You know, just oh, do yes. what you Absolutely. think you're supposed to do. And this is it. And I sadly, I know people who, unfortunately, you know, they they're too afraid to sort of step out of that comfort zone and, and speak their mind, live life how they want to live it. And it's quite sad because, you know, sometimes it is that push that we need. It's that courage that we need to make our own decisions, to, you know, sort of live life in, in, in your in your how should I put it, in in harmony, I think, with your own heart, because you cannot harmonize to other people's thoughts and processes, you can only harmonize to your own. If you are then just falling in line with what other people expect of you, then are you truly happy? Well, and it's got to be exhausting on your body to not be living the way you're supposed to be living, not living in your truth. And absolutely absolutely this is it and I think it doesn't matter Mm. you know what people think it doesn't matter how hard you know they sort of make you think you should be on a certain path you've just got to stick to your own path because the moment you do that it's the most liberating feeling you will ever have because you've taken control and you've you know you're sort of really just paving your own way and and you can own it because that success will be purely yours. It won't be mm-hmm. part of, you know, anybody else's input or influence. You know, that is your success. Yeah. And you own it in the end. Nobody else. Nobody That's can right. say, well, we take credit for this or we take credit for that. No, you take credit for it because 
you did the hard work and you stood up for what you believed in. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> well, so when is your next book? How far along? You're 20% along writing it? Is that about 20, 25%? So okay. it's very interesting. It's all about, um, you know, again, I've, I've stuck to this zigzag kind of timeline because I loved how it worked. I love that. So yeah. I loved the plot. So that the, the, the plot sort of narrative and the way, you know, the structure, I love the way it flips back and forth. So in my next book, I'm keeping that element. I've got a present day character and I've also got an Ottoman character as well. Oh, so the Ottoman okay. character, she's incredible. She's very much, um, you know, quite, quite the rebel. She's amazing. And um, she's, she's a maid as well. So she's, she's somebody who sort of works her way up you know the system in the palace so she sort of starts off in the kitchens and she slowly starts to work the ranks nice. she comes from a very poor background she's somebody who has gone through quite a lot really to sort of get where she is um, but along the way she learns so much about palace life and um, she interacts with so many different characters from you know the hierarchical system so we have eunuchs we have the grand vizier we have the um the army officers we have people that are working really hard to climb that ladder to get yeah. close to Wilson. so she along the way she you know she experiences a lot of um you know there's love there's loss um there's a lot of treachery as well there's secrets on the corridors there's backstab <laughs> all sorts going on all kinds of good stuff all kinds of good stuff but we also have a present day character who works in um, the V&A Museum in London so she's oh. a curator she's a historian and she's a curator of jewellery and she's been asked to come to the Topkapi Palace to um to have a look at creating a new pavilion and designing the whole new sort of look for the treasury um which is pretty much the sultan's treasury um and it's all about the spoonmaker's diamond so the spoonmaker's diamond actually exists it's an 86 carat diamond that's currently in the top Capi palace but nobody actually knows how it got there nobody has there is one common story um which is that it was found in a fisherman's net the fisherman then thought it was a piece of glass uh, a spoonmaker offered him three spoons in return and said i think it's a piece of glass but i'll give you three spoons he then handed it over uh, the spoonmaker realized this is actually a real diamond. He then gave it to the Grand Vizier, and from there it ended up in the hands of the Sultan. Um, so the, the, the story that I'm trying to cover is the part before it ends up in the fisherman's net. What happened to that diamond? How did it end up there? And what have these two characters got to do with it? our present day and our past character? How fascinating. That's fun. Yeah, so it, it, I look forward to seeing how it all comes together because that's a lot of a lot of stuff going on. That'll be fun. I'm currently immersed in Ottoman research, and uh, I just went out there sort of in February. I went to to, to the palace again for nice. sort of the time. I love going there; it's so wonderful. But I went with a fresh set of eyes this time. Went into the palace, took lots of photographs, and scouted yeah. out where the living quarters were and where the where all the characters would be set and it was so lovely to be there in person so I managed to get everything that I needed nice. and the story the story's underway so yeah well, good well good luck I can't wait to hear more about that one when when it goes further along hopefully hopefully next year hopefully 2023 uh, well we will look forward to that <laughs> so um if people want to find your book where can they find that it's called this Expelled is from is Uganda Absolutely. So expelled from Uganda, so they can search for me on Amazon. It is available on there as okay. Kindle and paperback. 
Um, and yeah, you can just find me on there pretty much. I'm an Amazon nice. girl. Uh, I think Amazon's also the way forward. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> they, absolutely. And how can people um, follow you? So people can follow me. Um, I've, there's my website, which is noreenasim.com. I've got all my details on there. I'm on Instagram and my handle is at my suitcase notebook. And I'm regularly on Instagram, getting up to all sorts of shenanigans. And all I enjoy of- your Instagram. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I do keep it real I share all sorts there and uh, from all walks of life and yeah just keep in touch I'll be I'll be posting lots of Instagram uh, stories on my uh, sort of progress on my next book nice Um, and I'll just keep keep you all updated on there so yes you can find me there excellent thank you so much for the conversation today I enjoyed this so much thank you thank you so much for having me on and please do keep in touch Um, I absolutely will Thanks for joining me today on the Literary Escape Podcast. If you enjoy hearing the behind the book story, then join me in the Literary Escape Society. We're a community of travelers who love books, or maybe book lovers who love to travel. Either way, if you need an escape, a literary escape, come join us as we read our way around the world together, one book at a time. Check out the show notes to learn more about the Literary Escape Society. And we'll see you next time on the next episode.